Thanks again, Carl Carty, Jason Germain, Vincent Carlo, Megan McCallan, Ben Phillips, and Caleb Bales. Once you take your program out, and you'll notice in the middle we have an insert that Lloyd has written the cover to, and we've got a little, a little chart on the back I want to draw your attention to for just a few moments. When we began the study of the Gospel of Luke, we stressed in some detail about why Luke has written this Gospel. God's Spirit obviously motivated him to write it, but you'll see on the front of the, hand, of the insert where uh, Luke is uh, quoted chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out to you in consecutive order, O most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And that began the purpose of the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke has more language, more detail, more information than any other writer in the New Testament as he compiles the Gospel called Luke and then the Acts of the Apostles. And so as we wind down this narrative, this uh, great Gospel, from the most detailed of authors, we want to come back to the beginning that you might know something precisely. So on the back of this card is a little chart, and it's a little familiar. We've given it to you before in a different format. But what we want you to think about in this message today, if you're daydreaming, redeem the time. Read Lloyd's letter, read the Bible, write something down, won't bother me at all. Use your time well, and write down here, what do I know for sure? perhaps based on the study of the Gospel of Luke. What do you know for certain? And we're, we've been doing this now last weekend at Franklin and here last night and this morning and after the service. If you want to come up and just share a brief one or two sentence or a short paragraph, we want to capture it on video right here with Ryan Mitchell and me. And uh, we would love to hear what you know for sure, what you now believe for sure, Maybe even unrelated to the gospel study, but what you know for sure now. And again, take a look at the card as we're going through this morning's exposition, and hopefully it will uh, pro provoke you to thinking and remembering some important truths. The journey of life is full of many chapters, and when we're young, we're concerned about school and maybe college and dating and breakups. And if we go on to college, we're maybe looking for a maid, a husband, a wife. We're looking for a spouse. We're choosing a major. Make lots of decisions in life, and those chapters become long and longer and get more complicated. And we get married, and we got to figure out how to stay married. And then we got to figure out how many children we're going to have, and how we're going to raise those children, and what they're going to grow up to be, and so forth and so on. And if we lose a job, if we change uh, professions, if we have a broken relationship, and these chapters that are broken and have trouble and decision metrics, we always come to them and go, what do we do now? And then we get real spiritual and ask God, what do I do now? I'm privileged to teach our young adults on Thursday nights called Inversion. And that age group of 20, 30-somethings, that's, that's when we all had those questions. What do I do in my life? How do I serve Christ? What do I want to be when I grow up? How do I find the right husband or wife? What's my career? Do I move? Do I change jobs? I'm in between jobs. What does God want of me? And those are swirling around in our 20s and 30s, and we're very obsessed with them naturally, normally, part of that time of our life. The corollary of those questions and what God is doing in our lives is something we need to think about. As I review my life and countless lives that I have listened to their stories, 
there seems to be an uncomfortable correlation. My walk with Christ, my intimacy with Christ, my connection with His Word, His Spirit, and His people are directly corollary to the way I respond to those situations. If I'm not moored and grounded and know what I know, and I'm not walking close with Christ, then when, not if, those things come into our life, we get all pell-mell and anxious and get real spiritual and get real religious, and we seek a lot of advice from a lot of friends. It's natural, it's normal, it's part of our existence. But the corollary is a little bit scary to think about. Or to say it another way, is God allowing those things in our lives to draw us to Himself? He is sovereign. Nothing misses His attention. And if we're living a life following Christ, it's not about us, it's about serving Him. I want you to open your Bible to Luke 24, and we'll look at verses 44 to 49 today. Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. And this small paragraph is chock full of rich theology and very common sense application. I want to make five observations about the text and then offer three lessons from it. So as we begin Luke 24, I'll read verse 44 to begin with. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Observation number one, everything written about the Christ must be fulfilled. Everything predicted about Him, everything stated about Him, everything foreshadowed about Him, everything pertaining to the person and work of Christ must be fulfilled. And as you look at these verses today, you'll see the restatement and emphasis and synonyms of the Word, what is written. Here he talks about the Old Testament in three large groups. The Pentateuch, the first five books. And then he talks about the prophets. We classify them major and minor because of size. And then the Psalms. Everything about Christ. Some have speculated 300 plus prophecies directly spoken of the Christ in the Old Testament were fulfilled in His coming. And Jesus is telling the disciples, the words I spoke to you when I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled. And this does a number of things. One, it shows Christ's view of the Bible is without error, important, and all will be fulfilled. In other words, Christ puts veracity on the Word of God. It also shows us the Word of God is true because all that was said was fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. What Christ says about the Word works both ways. What the Word says about Him, hundreds of years before He was even born incarnate to the Virgin Mary. Everything about Him must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, thus it is written, the emphasis on the written Word, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Number one, everything written about the Christ must be fulfilled. Number two, only God can open minds to understand this. Only God can open minds for us to understand this. He opened their minds. Now, 
In weeks past, uh, Lloyd talked about the road to Emmaus and gave us a running commentary on what might have been some of the things that he was sharing about himself to those two travelers. And in one sense, there's a romantic view of all of us. Oh, I'd have loved to have been on the road to Emmaus. Oh, I'd have loved to be seated in this group right now and hear what Jesus said about himself with the Pentateuch and the prophets and the Psalms. Um, Let me break it to you. You've got more information than they heard. I admit I have a romantic idea of walking along Emmaus Road. I, I, I admit that. We have more information here than they had in that walk. You have more knowledge about the Word and the person and the fulfillment of Christ. And if you know Christ, He has opened your mind. We'll talk about that in a moment. So that you can appreciate it and put value to it. If you're in a community group, we write questions that parallel the weekend passage. So your group leader may or may not choose to use those sometimes. Uh, The assignment this week has got a number of very specific psalm references and others where a prophecy was made about the Christ and then the New Testament corollary. So you can see just a few of them very precisely of what was said and what was fulfilled in in this idea. Now, when we read the Gospels, when we read the Gospels in particular, and Jesus is something to the disciples uniquely, we have to be good Bible students. In other words, we have to understand the context. If Jesus says something to a person or to an audience, how we apply that to ourselves is a a careful art. Some things are very clearly one-on-one applied. Some things are not. For example, in John 14, 26, we read the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said. Who is Jesus telling that to? The 11. Judas has left to go betray him, so it's just the 11 remaining. That application is unique for those 11 men, many of whom will write what we call the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Later, of course, Paul will enter the picture. Peter will write two letters, two epistles. And these authors, if you will, were inspired by God to write the very Word of God. When Jesus tells them, you'll remember everything I said, all that I said, I'll remind you of it all, does that one-on-one apply to you and me? No, we're not apostles. We're not writing the Word of God. And one of the challenges we have as Bible students, people who read the Scriptures, to know how we apply something and when we take it out of context and apply it. Because if we all knew all truth, we wouldn't be here today. There'd be one church, not innumerable denominational splits, not right, left, moderate, liberal, conservative, ultra-conservative. There'd be one church. We don't know all truth. We are struggling learners trying to figure it out. And my argument is be grounded in the Word, not in isms and ologies. Now, context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. If you know who he's saying it to in what context, then we can make application. But we must be very careful not to take something out of context and say what it does not say. Now, how is he opening their minds? Open in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to show you a passage that has helped me tremendously over the years. And I've shared it before. If you've heard it once, it bears repeating. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. The Holy Spirit is 
a subject, we as pastors have done a horrific job of teaching the role of God's Spirit. Pastors just don't do this well. And those that do it sometimes do it very poorly or make it even more confusing. The Holy Spirit is the person of God, not an it, not an entity. And what is the Holy Spirit going to do? Let me get you primed in this thinking. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning at verse 12. Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. When I was in college and courting Cindy and hoping to ask her to be my wife, uh, I was looking for an engagement ring. And I had a friend who happened to be a gemologist. And he said, Michael, don't buy the diamond from a store. I can get it to you for 50%, 60% less than you would pay in any jewelry store. Well, that's not a hard decision, right? I'm in. So one day we met at the student center of the university I was attending, and he took out a 35 millimeter film canister. How many of you know what a 35 millimeter film canister is? Yeah. Uh, and he took a black piece of fabric and dumped the contents on that black fabric right there in the student center of dozens of diamonds. And he pulled out of his pack a, eight, a 10 powered loop, a little magnifier with uh, it's clear on the bottom. And that's how you certify a diamond. You can look at it with more power, but you can't certify it with anything more than 10 power. It's unfair in other words. So he was looking through them and he ticked a bunch of them away. And with tweezers he put about I don't know, eight or 10 there. And he explained to me, cut, color, clarity, and carrot. And he said, uh, look at this one. You can see right through it. It's almost clear. There's no color. He set it aside. Look at this one. It's yellowish. It's not clear. It's muddy. Look at this one. It's got a big crack in it. They all have cracks in it. This is a really big one. This one has too many cuts. There are too many cuts to the person who cut the diamond. It's too busy. You can't even tell what it is. It's rock candy. We set that one aside. And then he had six or seven that he liked that were the shapes that he wanted. And I'm looking at each one trying to learn what he told me. And I picked one out that I liked, and I said, well, what do these cost? And he said, well, that one's uh, $1,250, that one's $3,275, that one's $6,000, this one's $5,400. And I looked at him and said, where's the price tag? How can you tell me how much they cost? And incredulously, he said to me, I'm a gemologist. <laughs> he was a certified gemologist. This is what he did for a living. He was trained to look at jewels and gold and silver and diamonds and rubies and sapphires and say, that's how much it's worth. Now, I could not tell you the price of those. They could be cubic zirconium. They could be rock candy. It could be a piece of glass for all I know. But he could look at it and tell me what they were worth. Before you and I know Christ and his spirit indwells in us, this book at best is a dry history book. I had professors in my public secular university that thought this was the best piece of literature ever penned, but it was just a book. But when you trust Christ, you are indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit permanently. 
And Paul is teaching the Corinthian believers here, when you look at it, you see you appraise it now with spiritual value. What before was just literature now has spiritual value to you. And what before had no value, he who's not a believer is spiritually, he can't handle it. It's, a, it's foolishness to him because it's of spiritual value and he can't comprehend it. So when we become believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit becomes the teacher in the sense that before you looked at it, I have no idea what it is. Now I can appraise value to it. Now I understand what it means. Now it hits me. Now it convicts me. Now it encourages me. Now it can help me. So when Christ opens their mind, this is what's happening. And of course the promise is going to be a reference to the Holy Spirit, which will come uh, in, the, in just a few verses and in Acts chapter 1. Back to Luke 24. He opened their minds to understand the Scripture and the references there, the law of the prophets, the, Mo, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Third observation, Christ had to die to be resurrected. He had to die and be resurrected. Part of what He's opening their minds to understand is what happened to Him. They're in this in-between time after Christ's death, the empty tomb, and waiting for the Spirit to come in Acts chapter 2, the way it's written in our Bible. They're in between, and they're not sure what they understand and what they don't understand. They've seen some things, but they haven't put it together. It's going to take God's Spirit before they begin to comprehend what this really means. Suffering, and the way Luke writes it here, includes the resurrection, the death and resurrection, suffered and then is rise again from the dead on the third day. The fully man part of Christ, if we in part it's not fair, but the fully God-man, fully man has to suffer and die. Fully God is the one who overcomes the power of death and new life. Paul will be commissioned with almost precisely the same language. Listen to Acts 26 verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles whom I'm sending you to. Verse 18, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified in me by faith. It's the same message, that your mind has to be opened from darkness from not understanding, not comprehending to what it means in order to apply it and see value in it. Christ had to die and be resurrected in order for the Spirit to come and empower us and open our mind. Fourth, the message will be proclaimed to the world in His name. The message will be proclaimed in His name to the world. Um, we read the phrase here, repentance for forgiveness, and that takes just a, a little explaining. Can't get too down the road here. But repentance at, its, at the simplest meaning is to change your mind. Repentance is to change your mind. It can be used to turn an idea. Repentance is not always sorrowful. I'm sorry for my sin, ergo I am repenting, therefore I'm repenting. What repentance means is turning and changing your mind. Here what Christ is saying and what Luke is recording is people who killed Jesus had to change their mind about who he was before they could embrace him. Sometimes we parse these things too tightly. 
Uh, we think about faith and belief and trust in Christ and salvation, but sometimes repentance is close at hand. Sometimes baptism is close at hand. Sometimes sanctification and justification are close at hand. Sometimes these terms are more manifold and we want to get real narrow in definition, and rightly so sometimes, but we may push it too far. The, the central part of the gospel is trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And some of these things, we try to make them sequential. They aren't always as neat as we would like them to be. And that's why Acts is such a powerful story about the way things happen sometimes. But here they have to turn in their thinking, change their mind about this Jesus that they killed, and then embrace Him. So repentance here is changing your mind and then having faith in Christ. It's probably one and the same the way Luke is writing it. Proclaimed is to preach, to herald, to declare it, to talk about it. So the message has to be preached, proclaimed, heralded around the world in His name. We might think of a town crier if you grew up in drama classes or had a part in a play. Or in our context we might think of the voice of Carol Birdsong. If you're a Williamson County resident, had kids in school, Carol Birdsong is the sweetest name a child can hear. There are Facebook like pages to her. There's raps done to her. Uh, because if Carol Birdsong calls, that means there's no school that day, or there's an early dismissal, or something else is going on. And children, when they see Williamson County on the phone, they pray it's Carol Birdsong on the other end giving her impeccable announcements. Years ago, Cindy and I, on our 10th wedding anniversary, her father gave us a very generous gift and sent us to Germany and Europe for uh, two weeks to see uh, the Passion in Garmisch, uh, Germany. And we went to Zellumsee, Monsee. We went to Salzburg in Vienna. It was a fabulous vacation. We were on a tour with uh, some people, and one of the individuals sort of hosting the tour was a chair of a religious, religion department of one of the most prestigious schools in America. He had a photographic memory. He was fluent in 10, 13 languages. One truly brilliant individual. I was 32 years of age, and I remember just pounding him with questions as we were on this tour. And we would go to different sites, and he would talk about them. It wasn't a religious tour, per se, but he would tell us stories about things. And of course, we went to the eight hour, the passion play. And between the break and before and after, I would ask him hundreds of questions. And I remember he could not embrace the fact that Jesus lived, died, and was buried. And simply by believing in that, we're given eternal life and forgiven of our sins. He just couldn't go there. And my 32-year-old thimble full of knowledge and experience talking to a man with oceans of information and intelligence, and I tried to share the gospel with him. Didn't matter how smart he was, he was blind. His mind was darkened. In fact, his own intelligence was a big part of his blindness because he knew everything. But he had no relationship with God. Didn't really even believe in God. Chair of a religion department and a powerful university in the United States of America. We're to herald, we're to proclaim, we're to tell the message, Jesus says, around the world in his name. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, he tells the eleven. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father. The promise of my Father is a synonym that Luke likes to use and hear God's voice, obviously, for the Spirit. 
the promise of the Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Fifth observation, a witness tells the truth. A witness tells the truth. We've Christianized these words, testimony, and be a witness to our disadvantage. Think of them in a neutral context. To be a witness is to say what you have seen and heard. To swear and tell the truth. I'm a witness in a trial. As a, they're taking a deposition, I am telling the truth. If you go before a court of law, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God, if that still goes on in some courthouses, over a Bible. And then you tell what you've seen and heard, and you're cross-examined, your testimony. What did you see? What did you hear? What do you know? The Boston bombing has changed things uh, yet again. But what's changed is 9-11 is the amount of forensic information we have from video, from cameras and cell phones and all this data. It's unprecedented. The images we're seeing, this is Star Trek stuff, man. We're seeing timestamps and imagery that is incontrovertible evidence. We can see what happens. We see images of two individuals. We see where the bombs went off. We see how the crowd moved. We see the devastation of those bombs on the human bodies that took the toll of those explosions. It's pretty incontrovertible. I saw it. I heard it. Here's a video to prove it. Okay? A witness tells what he's seen, what she's seen, what she's heard. You and I tell what we know to be true. And Jesus says here, you're to be a witness of these things. Three lessons. Number one, it's impossible to overstate the importance of his word. It's impossible to overstate the importance of his word. This little tiny paragraph, if you go home and study it on your own, and look at the references, both direct and indirect, to scripture. What is written, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, what is said, it's all about the word. And by the way, it's almost exactly what chapter one of Luke is saying. Let me marshal forth the evidence so you'll know precisely what you believe, Theophilus. And he's doing the same thing as he winds down the gospel, that you will know something. It's impossible to overstate the importance of the word. Now, I love Fellowship's missional view. I love our global involvement. I love that we send people abroad. I love it. I love it. I love it but there's always a danger. Every church is always reacting to something from where they came. Every church plant or break overreacts and overcompensates where they came from. If you or I go dig wells in Sudan, we go to Peru, we build houses in Mexico out of cinder blocks, and we go do all these good things. We dance, we sing, we preach. If we don't explain the gospel of Christ to individuals, that he lived, died, and was buried, and came back from the dead, and that it's rooted and grounded in the Word, we're doing nothing more than social work. Why would a student go to Peru and do all the preparation and spend the money and raise the support and go to Peru with a wordless bracelet or a painting a face and tell kids about Jesus when he or she won't talk about Jesus to a kid they live next door to or go to school with? Churches are always overcompensating. We do global fabulously. Do not hear me dis-global. But if we do not share the gospel of Christ with the people whom we go see, we're just doing social work. 
The church is often blamed for sex trafficking. What are we doing? Marriages and divorces. What are we doing? Uh, Getting the homeless off the street. What are we doing? Helping people who have no place shelter. They're drug addicts. Well, number one, the church does a lot that the media never knows about. And let's keep it that way. But if we do all that and we don't share Christ, we may as well just be government aid to people in need. We're not resolving the problem. We're only addressing the symptoms. You cannot overstate the importance of being grounded in his word. You cannot overstate, Jesus says, what I have told you, what I have said to you, what you've seen me do, what you've experienced and heard. You are to teach others to do these things. We might call it the prime directive. (laughs) It's impossible to overstate the importance of his word. And apart from being grounded in his word, there is no authority in what we do. Scripture is not another religion. It's not a book to go on a coffee table or an end table or a shelf. It's not for newborns and newlyweds or a newly deployed soldier. It is the very Word of God. It is God's mind in print. You've got eight copies at home probably. You cannot grow in the Christian faith apart from time in His Word. You will not mature in Christian maturity apart from His Word. You cannot live on one bowl of oatmeal all of your life. You've got to feed yourself daily. And it's a spiritual discipline. Oh, it's hard. It's difficult. You know what? you got all your life to do it. You take lessons to play an instrument. You work on job performance. You go to school to get a degree. You check boxes for certifications. You take testing. You get further training, continuing education. All great stuff. I guarantee you when the props are knocked out and the child breaks your heart, your husband or wife leaves you, you lose your job, you get touched with the cancer word, you have a health, bad health news in your family or yourself, where do you turn? You get real spiritual. We all do. And that's where I think the corollary is frightening, but accurate. I wonder in my life, would I be the man I am apart from living with what I live with? Answer, no. That which we dislike in our flesh and that which we limp with in our flesh, I can't say it is one-to-one. I'll say for me, it is one-to-one for me. What draws me to him? Otherwise, I don't need him. It's impossible to overstate the importance of his word. Secondly, it's impossible to overstate the importance of his spirit. Again and again, the Gospels will talk about our inability to do anything apart from God's spirit. John 21, great story there. They're in between. Jesus is, the grave's empty. He's, He's coming. He showed up and left a couple of times. They're not really sure what's happening. And it won't be till Acts 2, till the Holy Spirit comes, that they'll understand the empowering. In the in-between time, in John 21, Peter has this great line. He says, I am going fishing. you got to love it. And the ten go, we will also go with you. I mean, it's like Eeyore, we'll also go with you. What are we going to do? We don't know what's happening. We're waiting around for what? And they're human beings just like we are. So what did Peter do? He went back to what he knew. He was a professional fisherman by trade, as was Andrew. They work all night and catch zip. Pros come home with empty nets. 
And as they're pulling into the seashore of Galilee, Jesus stands there with a charcoal fire ready, some fish already that he caught and cooked. You got to love it. <laughs> and he says, throw your net in one more time. Oh, Lord, all night long working at your bidding, we'll do it. And they bring in the great catch. What's the story about? In your human capacity, in what you know, fisherman, doctor, educator, attorney, housewife, homeschool teacher, police officer, medical worker, in what your strength is, you go do your very level best. You're impotent. You're good in business, good with numbers, you're impotent. You do what I want you to do, you got all the power you'll ever need. One more time. One net cast, and they couldn't contain the count of fish. All night long, zip. It's impossible to overstate the power and the importance of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine for years. And again, pastors, we have been terrible at teaching people about the spiritual life. We talk about it at these poor illustrations and bad images, and we wonder why we have bad theology about the Holy Spirit so often. Um, for years, I had a, a post-it on my steering wheel back in the Virginia, D.C. days, and it had the question on it, MJE, who will control your life, you or the Holy Spirit? Remember when we used to use banner screensavers back when we worried about screens? And you go in, you set your, and you write something to yourself, cutesy, and it would go across the screen, like, I'm working really hard, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I had mine, it said, MJE, who will control your life, you or the Holy Spirit? After five minutes in activity, my screen went black, and in bright letters that went across my screen, MJE, who will control your life, you or the Holy Spirit? For years, I had that posted on my steering wheel and that banner on my desktop because I had to be reminded all the time, you have a choice, Michael. You can do this in the flesh, in your own strength, your ability, your knowledge base. You think you're something. You think you know something. You think you're good. Or you can do it submitting to Christ's power and His Spirit, and you'll have more power than you'll ever need. We live out of a human fleshly strength to accomplish that which can only be accomplished in a spiritually powerful way. We're not trying to be better sinners. We're not trying to be less guilty sinners or smarter sinners or make the flesh better. We're trying to be controlled by His Spirit. And that takes, number one, a submission to His Word. If I don't understand the importance of His Word, I will certainly understand the importance of how His Spirit uses His Word to convict me, to encourage me, to help me, to push me along, to motivate me on how I'm supposed to respond to things in life and not go crazy when bad things happen. It's impossible to overstate the importance of His Word. It's impossible to overstate the importance and the power of His Spirit. And thirdly, it's impossible to overstate the importance of being a witness. We are here to be witnesses of Him. You and I are to tell people about what we've seen, what we heard, what we know, what our experience has been. Before I knew Christ, I was into drugs. I was a guilty person. I was licentious. I was a horrible teenager. After I came to Christ, those things started to lose their grip on me. I still sin all the time. I still fail all the time. I make a thousand mistakes a day. 
but I have a standard and a calibration and an authority called God's Word. And I have His Spirit to help convict me and help me and encourage me and pull me up when I need it. And my goal and my mission in life is not finding the right job, the right wife, the right husband, the right number of children, the right school, the right profession, the right degree, the right job because I lost my last job. That's secondary to am I serving Christ. It may sound very over-spiritual, but I would stake my life on it. If you're walking intimately with Christ in His Word, submitting to the power of His Spirit, and serving Him by being a witness the way He wants you to, you need not worry about the things you worry about. He's not put us on this planet to worry about our children 24-7. He's not put us on this planet to worry about our health until we finally die. We're all going to die. Good news. He he didn't put us here to make millions of dollars to spend it on self-ingratiating toys and habits and making a pleasant life. All fine stuff. He didn't put us on this earth to wonder, am I ever going to be a success? Will I ever do this or that? Will I ever find a husband or wife? How do I live past my divorce? How do I live with cancer? He didn't put us here to live horizontally. That's the human condition. (laughs) We're comparing ourselves against ourselves. Fools! He gives you His Word, which is authoritative and true. He gives you His Spirit, which is more power than we comprehend. And He says, be a witness for me. Tell people about my Word and about my Spirit. You be a witness for me. And then you can put, and I'll take care of the rest. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people understand the mission.